Roger William Thomas relates this story about a woman who was diagnosed with terminal cancer and given three months to live by the doctors. The woman called her pastor and invited him to uh, come over to her house, and they sat down to talk together. She said, I want to talk about my funeral. And so they started making funeral plans. They talked about the music that would be sung. They talked about the scriptures the woman wanted. They even talked about the blue dress that she wanted to be buried in. And uh, they, uh, they had a good time and visit together. The pastor prayed for the woman and uh, he was getting ready to go. And all of a sudden the woman turned and said to him, oh, I completely forgot something that's incredibly important. I want to uh, have a fork in my hand as I'm laying in the casket. The pastor uh, was a bit uh, befuddled, <laughs> confused about this. Uh, he had never exactly had a request like this before uh, from, uh, from, from someone. And so uh, she, she kind of perceived that uh, he didn't know what to say. She said, Pastor, it's okay. Let me tell you something. She said, one of my favorite experiences in this church for many years has been the, uh, the potluck dinners, the church socials that we have experienced together she said, we always felt, I always felt so close. I always felt like I belonged, that I was family here. And she said, you know, my favorite part of the experience was always after the main course was finished and the uh, plates and uh, cutlery were being cleared away. And she said, inevitably, somebody would say, oh, keep your fork. Because there was something better that was coming in the meal, she said it might be a piece of wonderful, dreamy chocolate cream cake, or it might be a deep dish homemade apple pie that somebody had just baked that day. But she said, I always knew that something better was ahead. And she said, I want you to make sure that I've got a fork in my hand in the casket. Because she said, I know the people when they see me are going to go, hey, what's with the fork? And she said, when they ask you that, I want you to tell them, keep, you, keep your fork, the best is yet to come. Well, um, for faithful followers of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. Um, as the old gospel song says, this world is not my home, I'm, I'm just passing through. We're headed somewhere where the best is to come. Where is that, that you ask? Oh, the expected answer would be heaven. That would be correct. In, in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. I am going there to prepare a place for, for you. Jesus said to the, to the thief on the cross who expressed repentance and faith, Today, you will, will be with me in, in paradise. In, in 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul tells us that to be absent from our mortal body is to be present with the Lord. And where, where is the Lord? He is in heaven. In Philippians 3.20, we read Paul's words, our citizenship is in heaven. We, we look forward to a Savior that comes from them there, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So yes, believers are headed to heaven when we die. But will we live in heaven forever? Is it where we will spend all eternity? The answer may surprise you. Our passage today, Revelation 21, 1 through 8, that Abe just read a few minutes ago, deals with this question. The passage is part of the visions God gave to the Apostle John about the, the end times. Well, well, where does this passage fall in the, the continuum of end time events prophesied in the book of Revelation? The events of chapter 21 occur after Jesus Christ has gloriously returned to earth and consummated his kingdom reign. After all evil has been defeated, the beast, false prophet, and Satan have thrown into the lake of fire. And after all the peoples who have, who have lived have been resurrected and judged, those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. And those whose names are found in the Lamb's book of life begin their final state for all eternity. What awaits those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of, of life. John says in ver- verse, Then I saw a new heaven and a, and a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth, had passed away, and then the sea was no more. Many pe- people believe heaven will be like some commercials that aired in, in years past that showed men and women sitting on clouds, playing harps, and at least according to the, to the commercial, eating Philadelphia brand cream cheese. Is this really what heaven will be like? The truth, truth is that many of our beliefs about the afterlife have been conditioned by Greek ideas shaped by classical philosophers such as Plato. The Greeks are very interesting. They believed in two levels or two planes of reality. They believed the soul along with the spiritual world existed at the top level of reality. It consisted of ideas such as truth, Beauty, goodness, justice, and perfection. Conversely, the Greek believed that the body existed at the lower level of, uh, of, of reality, which was not ultimate. It, it contained the imperfect physical manifestations of the ideas that exist in the perfect top level. So by definition, the body and the physical world is characterized by things like falsehood, ugliness, Evil, injustice, imperfection. Because of these perspectives, the Greeks believed salvation consisted of the soul shedding baggage of the body and the physical world at death. In other words, the body was bad and awake to experiencing ultimate reality. The soul could only be free and unshackled from the body. The Bible, on the other hand, teaches something quite different than the beliefs of the Greeks. Related to the soul, the Bible teaches that because of sin, our souls are dead and and unable to understand spiritual truth apart from God's enlightenment. Related to the body, rather than seeing our bodies as bad, the Greeks did, the Bible teaches that our bodies were made by God and that our bodies and everything else God made is good. The Bible teaches that because of the effects of sin, 
our bodies will die. But it also teaches that when Christ returns, the, the remains of our mortal bodies will be resurrected and, and transformed into glorified bodies like Jesus' body after the resurrection. I've thought about this, but Jesus didn't walk around just like a ghost. Jesus' post-resurrection body still had the same physical features he had before their death. He had flesh and bones. The nail wounds were still visible in his hands and in his, in his feet. He could e- even eat earth, earthly food. His glorified body was not bound with the same physical, physical limitations it had known before death and resurrection. He simply appeared to the disciples in the upper room without the door opening, and he vanished from sight from two disciples as they shared communion after encountering him on the road to Emmaus. Well, contrary to what the Greeks thought, we will not spend eternity floating around as bodiless spirits. We will spend eternity in spiritual bodies like that of Jesus. Our glorified bodies will come and he, because God reveals through John's vision that we will spend eternity on a new earth. Throughout the entire Bible, the ultimate destiny of God's people is an earthly destiny. Biblical thought always places humanity in the end times on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. In what way? I like to ask questions. <coughs> Excuse me. In what way, way will this new heaven and new earth be new? Will the new heaven and new earth be, be a renewal of the present creation or a totally new, new replacement? Well, ma- many believe it will be a totally, totally new replacement. The Old, Old Testament prophet that spoke of the illusion of heaven and earth. Peter also, also foretold of a fiery to our world to be succeeded by new, new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Christ declared, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. <coughs> On the face of it, such statements would seem to indicate the discarding of the old and its replacement by a totally new creation. But there are also some biblical considerations which could support the view of renewal. In Matthew 19.28, we read that Jesus speaks of the renewal or the regeneration of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. While preaching in the temple, after healing the leader, Peter said Jesus will remain in heaven until the time comes for the restoration of all things. Nowhere in Revelation we hear of fire being a part of end-time destruction of the earth. Paul speaks in Romans 8, 19-22 of the present creation as meeting with eager longing for the revealing of the sins of God when it be free from its bondage to decay. This seemed to indicate that new heaven and earth will consist of creation being renewed and brought to the glorious confirmation for which it was always intended. Other supporters of this viewpoint point out that God's grand story has always been about redemption, the restoration of what was lost in the fall. They note the Bible says that God's original creation was good and that a renewal of creation is consistent with God's renewal 
of, of fallen humanity. There, there's also a matter of the new birth or new creation experienced by believers. Second Corinthians 5.17, we read that Paul, Paul says, If anyone is in, is in Christ, he is a new, new creation. The old has passed away. This terminology of the new creation is the same as John uses here in Galatians. And it's obvious in spiritual renewal, Paul describes that the physical person who is a new creation has not passed away. He or she, she is the same person as, as before, but only now renewed and set free by Christ. Well, how do we respond to this, this possible tension between the possibilities of replacement and renewal. Well, one possibility is he is by considering, as some have suggested, that the answer is not found only in renewal or replacement, but in both. The current creation could, could be destroyed with fire, and the remains of that, that same creation be reborn by a new created act of God. This could occur in much the same manner as there as the transition that awaits our physical bodies. Our bodies will be destroyed by death, but those same bodies will subsequently be raised again, transformed by a new creative act of God at final resurrection. Another way of responding to the tension is by following John's lead. What does John, John think? John, John seems not worry about it. He isn't concerned about whether the earth will be renewed or replaced. He's focused on who will be there and what will occur. And that's where he turns his attention. In verse 2, he says, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven. God prepared like bride, adorned for her husband. In verses such as Hebrews 12, 22 to 25 and Galatians 4, 26, we learn that the New Testament conceives a heavenly Jerusalem as the dwelling place of God, the true home, homeland, the redeemed, and the dwelling place of the, of the spirits of just us men made perfect. While this heavenly Jerusalem is represented as the dwelling place of departed believers, heaven is not their, their ultimate destiny, but only their temporary abode between death and resurrection. In the consummation, and after the resurrection, the heavenly Jerusalem will descend from heaven to take up its permanent location on the new earth. The heavenly Jerusalem is, is looking to bride, beautiful, ready for her wedding day. This imagery speaks of the, of the church. The redeemed church has always been, has been like a bride who is, who is joined with the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now you're probably thinking, Kent, I don't get it. How can the new Jerusalem be a physical city and also be the church, be redeemed people? Well, f- first of all, Revelation is a book filled with symbols. Sometimes those symbols can reflect more than one, one reality. Fit this way. A city has no vital identity apart from its citizens. Would Calgary be Calgary if it didn't have any Calgarians? If, the, if, nobody, if no, nobody lived here? What makes Calgary Calgary? Ultimately, it's the people who live in a place that, 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 that give it vibrancy. Um, um, just as Babylon in Revelation represents the people of Rome and not simply its location, and just as the name Jerusalem in the Old Testament usually included the people of the city, not simply the site, the term New Jerusalem undoubtedly includes the people 
of God. It's because the citizens of the holy city from heaven redeemed that it's said to be like a bride adorned for her husband. The lamb is the great bridegroom with whom his bride, the church, is united in a state of everlasting blessedness. Redeemed believers are the vibrant components of the new Jerusalem in the same way as we are the living stones that form the spiritual temple of which Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. Well, where does John go next? Verse 3, he says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. Here, we find the purpose of the holy city in the new earth that God has created. God will dwell. He lived together with redeemed believers in perfect joy and harmony. In Old Testament times, you may remember this, God's dwelling place was first in the tabernacle, and it was in the wilderness, and later in the temple. In both, God's presence was manifested by his Shekinah glory over the Ark of the Covenant. In the coming of Christ, God took, his, took, took up his dwelling among us. John 1, 1, 14, read, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means tabernacle. It utilizes the same word as that found in the Old Testament references to God's dwelling place in the tabernacle and in the temple. And the same word used here, Revelation, speaking of God's dwelling with humans on the new earth. At Pentecost and thereafter, God indwelt his church, which is now his temple through the Holy Spirit. But this dwelling of God in us by his Spirit can be apprehended only by faith, not by sight. In the new heaven and new earth, when God's grand narrative is finished, all this will be changed. Faith will become sight, and we will live with and see God literally face to face. We start to visualize this reality. But direct, unmarred fellowship between God and his people has always been God's plan. This intimacy between God and redeemed believers is further expressed by the phrase, they shall be his peoples. This this is an echo of the Old Testament idiom. I shall be their God and they shall be my people. It expresses the the off-heated aim aim of God's self-revelation to and his dealings with his children. All the promises of God's covenant with humanity, made first through Abraham, renewed through Moses, embodied in Christ, will at last be finally realized. Well, how, how will God treat us as redeemed believers? As, as beloved children. Notice verse 4. This is good. Come with me. John says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will no more because the previous things have passed away. Here we see again that John describes the new creation not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, no, but to comfort us about the nature of this heaven and new earth. God's presence will with us 
will mean the end of sorrow and all of its causes. Death, suffering, tears, mourning will be eradicated. Hallelujah! This is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. You may hear that song. You might not. Don't. I'll sing it for you. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Got another part in there. About they shall obtain gladness and joy. Guess, guess what? That prophecy see from Isaiah chapter 35 and 51 and sing again in Isaiah 5 is talking about this. This time we are talking about the new heaven and new earth when, when we are in the presence of God and we experience nothing but joy. Well, John continues his vision in, in verse 5. He says this, The one seated on the throne said, Look, look I am making everything new. He, he also is right because the words are faithful and true. Here we see that God's purpose don't end with judgment. They, they end with the new, new creation. God, God is declaring that the consummation of the revitalized power of divine grace now active in the hearts of believers, which caused Paul to exclaim that, that every who is in Christ, new creation, the old things have become, uh, the, the old things have become new. Here we, here we see the one who is, who is responsible for the creation of the new heaven and earth. God himself has acted to make redeem believers and, and all of creation new. God is the author of this creative act, and because he is, he, he takes on to write down what he, he sees, presumably, so others like you and me will hear it and know it. Think about it. If, if John had written down what, what he saw, we might not be having this, this meeting here today, and we, we, might, we, we very likely might not be uh, reading from this passage from, from God's Word. God also tell, tells John that the vision and the words he's hearing are worthy and true. In modern day terms, God says this to John, John, you can take what I'm, what I'm saying, tank. In verse 6, we read, Then he said to me, It is done. This is the voice of God, God himself speaking. God's voice is only heard a few, few times in Revelation. The Greek verb is in the plural, mean, meaning they are done. In other words, the thing, things that I'm speaking to you about that will be in the future are already done. The purpose, purposes of redemption are as sure as though they have already taken place. The future is not uncertain to those who trust God. The future is, is secure because God is the eternal one. God continues. He says, I am, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and, and the end. I don't know if this, but Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like us saying... Uh, everything from E to Z. In other words, God is the one who encompasses all reality in himself. Beginning and the, and the end, he's the e- eternal one who brought, brought everything into existence and who will make all things new. In verse we also, also read, it says, this said, I will freely give to the thirst from the spring of the water of life here we see the renewal of all things includes the satisfaction of our deepest need as humans, our spiritual need. 
This offer an echo of God, God's invitation to those who are spiritually thirsty from Isaiah 55. The price just to drink the spring of the water of life was paid, paid by Christ. To drink from God's water of life means for, for one spiritual desire to be completely satisfied forever. In verse 7, the voice of God continues. He said, the one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. The right to enjoy all of these things is not given arbitrarily, but to him or her who conquers. Here we're reminded of God's promises made at the beginning of Revelation to the seven churches. Those promises start with, to him who conquers, I will. To him who overcomes, I will. One of the the things over and over over throughout the book of Revelation is the vital importance of perseverance, of being faithful to Christ to to the very, regardless of personal cost. Here, we see a prerequisite to enjoying the blessings of God in the new Jerusalem. Abiding loyalty to Christ in the face of evil and persecution. To the individual who overcomes, God says that he or she will be his son or his daughter and will inherit all these blessings. The vision God gives to John of the new heaven and new earth is filled with joy and delight beyond human comprehension. It makes me think of that scripture. Eye has not seen and ears not heard. God has prepared for those who love him. But in verse 8, the vision segues to sober warning. It says this, hang with me. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, Idolaters and all liars, their share will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Some people will not have access to the water water life. Instead, they will be cast into the, into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Who are these individuals? The first mentioned are cowards. These are likely those who fear persecution more than, than they revere God. Secondly, the, the unbelieving are mentioned. While this term certainly applies to those who reject Christ's Lord, it also refers to those who have professed faith in Christ, but prove faithless, who are unwilling to maintain their faith when, when they experience testing. The third group is called the detestable. The Greek word here is related to word, words that refer to abominations, actions that, that are disgusting God. The term abominations is most often um, applied publicly to two sins, sin, sexual immorality, and far more frequently, idolatry. Fourth, murderers. This is a broad designation, but it includes those who kill God's saints. It may include those who betray Christians to the government to save their own lives, who would not meet fellow Christians' needs. Five, the sexually immoral. This includes any sexual act other than heterosexual intercourse between a married man and woman. As already mentioned, it's worth noting that the term in Revelation also 
often refers to spiritual immorality. Six sorcerers. This includes manner of occult practice, including witchcraft, black magic, consulting psychics, mediums, channeling, voodoo, horoscopes, Ouija boards, tarot cards, palm reads, all manner of new age and Eastern religious practices, and the list could go on and on and on. God's over and over in his word have nothing to do with these practices of darkness. The seventh is idolaters to worship other gods, whether it's worse worshiping Caesar, Roman or Greek gods and goddesses, or worshiping the idols of this world system that you and I are so tempted oftentimes to succumb to. The last group are liars. This includes not only false prophets like Balaam and Jezebel, but also those who falsely claim to follow the truth. Here's an important question with me that we need to answer after reading this list. This is a sober warning. If you've, if you've ever been to of one, one of these sins, will you be excluded from God's presence in the new Jerusalem? Will you be thrown into the lake fire? At the end of the preceding chapter, chapter 20, we see that the deciding factor as to whether one is thrown into the fire or is ushered into the new Jerusalem is whether or not that person's name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus came to save sinners. Sinners guilty of all kinds sins. There is no sin that Jesus' blood is inadequate to cover. In, in fact, his first letter to the, to the Corinthians, Paul, Paul some words very similar to those we, we just read here in Revelation 21. Paul says this, don't you know that the unrighteous will not, not inherit his kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who, who have sex males, no thieves, Greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Listen to this. And some of you used to be like this. In the King James it says, and such were some of you. But then look what he says next. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is not only sin that Jesus can't forgive, there is no stronghold of sin from which Jesus can't set you free. The changes in the Corinthian believer and in countless believers through the centuries right up today provide proof of Jesus' saving, delivering power. What we can see here is this list of people who not enter the new Jerusalem and whose end will be the fire are those who stubbornly persist in sin and in their rebellion against God. The list doesn't apply to those who sin and then confess and turn away from their sin and turn towards God. What can we say in response to what we've learned about new heaven 
and earth that lies ahead. We can say this, all whose names are written in the Lamb's of life are headed to a heavenly home. A heavenly home that will eventually descend to a to an earth cre- created by God himself. A home where God is present, where we will see him face to, to face, where he will wipe away every tear from our eye and death, mourning, crying, and pain will, will be no more. Every time you pick up, up a fork, re- remember this. The best is yet to come. Let's Father, your, your words are both a deep and profound consolation and encouragement, and at the same time, create a holy awe, fear of you. Not a fear that's afraid of you, of you, a God. Fear that recognizes that you are God and that, and that we are not. And that one day, that every single one of us will, will be judged. Lord, thank you that you have made way for us. Even when we were caught in the, the trap of sin and even though when we were rebellious against you, you provided a way for us to be forgiven, to be cleansed, and to be able to be restored to relationship with you. And one day, God, we will get to, to enjoy that, that relationship face to face for all eternity. God, I pray that each one of us would hear what you are speaking to us today. Lord, some of us, you're sharing deep and encouraged in our heart. Lord, some of us, you're, you're reminding that whatever we're going through now, that it's all going to be worth it one day when we do see you face to face. Lord, others of us over here Lord, uh, are wondering whether a name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Father, I pray that not a single person would live here today without knowing knowing answer to that question. Father, for others of us, you are calling us to live holy and godly lives that, that look like you, that don't look like the world around us. And Father, thank, thank you that you only call us to live like you. You empower us. You help us when we submit us in our lives to you. So Father, we, your people today, say thank you. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness and of eternal life that we have through your Son. Thank you that 
we can look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We, we as your church, will be wed together with Christ, and we will get to spend eternity in the joy and the wonder and the, and the bliss of your presence. She, Lord, we thank you for this, this gift. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.